You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. You're listening to this podcast. You love podcasts. Hopefully, you also love the Second City and our work. You know who else will love podcasts from the Second City? Your colleagues and employees. I'm excited to share a new partnership that the Second City Works is entering into with Venly, an audio technology company that allows businesses to share audio and podcasts directly for employee engagement and learning and development. Our new series, First Takes, uses amazing corporate insights and teaching that we've developed through the years and communicates it in eight short podcast episodes. Share this content with your employees on channels like Slack, Microsoft Teams, SharePoint, First Up, and your LMS, all with enterprise-grade security, privacy, and analytics. Interested in sharing this content and learning more? Register at www.venly.co slash Second City, and we'll get you set up. Once again, it's www.venly.co slash Second City to get access to the First Takes content series. We're looking forward to learning with you and your colleagues. Uh, the podcast today is with Todd Cashton, who is a professor of psychology at George Mason University. He's published over 200 scientific articles, appearing in the Harvard Business Review, National Geographic, among others. Um, he is the author of the books Curious and the Upside of Your Dark Side. And his new book is called The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. I really enjoyed this conversation. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Todd Cashton, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So you start this book by talking about Charles Darwin, or actually more importantly, the predecessors of Charles Darwin. And I'm wondering if you can talk about them and why their experiences speak to both the power and the difficulty of being a dissenter. Yeah, so people don't know about this, but in The Origin of Species, the, where Darwin laid out his theory of evolution, he added a preface. And he didn't originally add the preface. The preface was all the people that came out with some semblance of this idea of evolution, but they were a little bit too afraid to go too far and say it publicly. And he wanted to make sure they kind of uh, – he, he stood on the shoulders of giants that gave everyone credit that they deserved. And the story is all of these people – um, you know, you're talking about the Middle East, you're talking about Asia, you're talking about Europe. Tons of people have discovered the, the nature of evolution, but nobody put all the pieces together 
And the culture was never ready for this idea that humans were not the product of some higher power, some supernatural entity. And it required someone who was studiously studying different creatures, different animals, different plants um, over the course of time to put these things together. But the beauty about Darwin, the reason like why did he make it and 30 other predecessors didn't, is that he knew that the world wasn't ready. He knew that he had to create a coalition of people who are better public speakers than him, be the ones to speak at scientific conventions because he just didn't have the gift of the gab. And he also knew that it had to be a little bit playful and entertaining because science is dull. And when you're going to try to entice somebody about a new worldview of seeing themselves and the entire species, it's got to be interesting and fun. That's the pedagogical tool that allows people to kind of really link into this notion, attach to this notion, and then think about how their own lives revolve around this. Not something I need to tell you, but the second city in terms of the value of humor and playfulness and levity. Yeah, totally. And these predecessors, it's not like they were just sort of like people yelled at them or wrote a bad op-ed. I mean, they were like beheaded and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. People will put in an Iron Maiden, which has uh, steel spikes. They close it on you. It's not like you're taking a 19.5 minute nap in your office. Um, yeah, people had you know p- police surveillance. People were killed. Um, yeah, the the early harbingers of evolution was not for you know the shy and uh, unassertive. Yeah, it, 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 in this book, there's a tension in the book which I really enjoy, which is the, this absolute need for you know we make no progress without rebellion and dissent, and at the same time, it's really, really, really hard. I mean, these are the two things that we think about when we have an opinion that deviates from whoever we're hanging out with. It could be seven people at a table, and we're the one of the seven that has a different political view. We say to ourselves, I must be wrong because why are the other six people thinking and converging on the other way? And the other one is, do I want to risk my hide and be socially persecuted and rejected? Do I want to like basically this to be the battle that I'm going to die on? And often... You have people that are wanting to dissent, know they should dissent, but because of the answers to those two questions, they decide to self-silence themselves. All right. So um, I have worked with a bunch of academics. I interview a bunch of academics. There is a concept called me-search. Uh, I'm curious in terms of you entering this topic, uh, where, where do you land on the spectrum of a re- rebellious human being? I'm high. I'm, I, okay. am, I am definitely not high on the agreeable agreeableness dimension of the big five personality traits. I am perfectly comfortable. I'm a New Yorker. I can yeah. argue with people. I take pleasure in it. Um, mm-hmm. I like going toe to toe with people that are smarter than me, wiser than me, have higher status than me. And the way that I've conducted most of my research in my career is when everyone believes that they found the panacea to life's ills. I remember when mindfulness became all the rage yeah. in the early 1990s. I thought to myself, if this was such a powerful tool, when, why wouldn't we have evolved to be mindful more often? Why does our mind wander so mm. often over the course of a day? And that led to an entire line of research and a chapter in my last book on the benefits of mindlessness. And mm. so, I, so my automatic inclination to answer your question is to zig when everyone else zags. As soon as people get excited about a topic, I think about where are the holes, where are the context where it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, Danny Kahneman has said that he sees the world as a problem. And and for him, that's a very positive thing because it allows him to play the game of trying to fix that problem or find out what that problem is. 
Um, I, I think maybe a place that I also want to start is you have a definition of rebellion. Can you lay that out? Because I think it's a, re- it's a really useful tool as we take this conversation forward. Yeah, this is pretty important because you have anti-vaxxers, you have the Ottawa truckers, you have um, people that are actually threatening, you know, the congresswoman in Michigan. I mean, you've got dissenters. There's plenty of them. You've got people that are still believe, you know, the wrong person became president of the United States based on how the votes were tallied. So we have to separate principled and unprincipled dissent. Mm -hmm. And the way that I view it is the motivations matter. And the outcome that you're pursuing matters. So in terms of the motivation, to what degree is this non-phoniness? Is this, is it, it is an expression of your authentic values and your cherished interests and not your indicator that you're a good member of the tribe that you belong to or aspire to be part of and not some attempt just to win status and power and be you know, one of the cool kids, which our lives as adults is no different than middle school. Yeah. And in terms of the outcome, Are you trying to – in some ways, this book is not about rebels or rebellions or insubordination. It's really about closing the gap between the life as we see it now and utopian ideals of how the world could be. So as long as the world keeps progressing, you know, we become more and more finely attuned to smaller problems that actually that we should be focusing on that the world could be slightly better. And that's not a bad thing. It just means that there's constantly things to work for. And so if you're constructively working towards utopian ideals for yourself, you're trying to optimize the lives of other people, and you're not trying to detract from other people's well-being, then you're talking about you're in the space of principled insubordination. And if you're you know, impulsive and reckless and it's out of spite, or it's to try to win attention, all of these motivations move you further away from what I would call principled insubordination. Okay. So um, I want to talk about some of the stuff that gets in the way uh, of, of us be, being rebels. And I, I'm a huge basketball fan and I'm good friends with Adam McKay. And he just had the, the uh, series about the Showtime Lakers. Um, uh, Rick Barry, very successful free throw shooter, right? Like yeah. history of the NBA. Um, why doesn't everyone throw it underhand? It is, it is a, one of the most fantastic things that is not exploited enough in discussions of sports. Yeah. I mean, we know from just the law of physics and athleticism that it is so much easier to, to hit a free throw. So you're standing 15 feet away from a basket. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is allowed to be in front of you. You are alone dribbling the ball. And when you decide, you shoot the ball into the basket. Um, if you do it underhand, it is one single swoop of two hands around a ball. And you actually can aim it, aim it on this nice 45-degree nice arc. And because of the speed, it slows down when you throw it underhand. Even if you miss, the likelihood it's going to hit the backboard and slowly bounce into the rim. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be easier. But everybody shoots it overhand. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is there is a number of Hall of Fame National Basketball Association players, a number of people that have been in, we're, we're talking now in the middle of college March Madness. Yep. Some of the best college players in the world have gone on record saying, I don't want to be a sissy. I don't want to be seen as a wuss. No matter how much money you pay me, I would never throw it underhand because I, would, I could not handle being disrespected like that. It is amazing. These are some of the, the icons of modern society, which is a question for another day. Yeah. In terms of these professional and amazing athletes, we put them on a pedestal and yet they're willing to lose games, willing to lose points because they don't want to be seen as foolish. 
Yeah, and Will Chamberlain did this for the better part of two seasons, right? And he 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 his free throw percentage skyrocketed. Yeah, he had like a twenty over twenty five percent increase in his free throw percentage, and you know your salary is contingent on what you do in terms of the statistics and mm-hmm. how many games you win. And the idea that the greatest basketball player, arguably or at least top five in the world in history, and according to him was able to sleep with over 10,000 women over the course of his lifetime, <laughs> right. but economists have done the math and it's statistically impossible. Yeah. <laughs> but the, at that level, you can't be more socially attractive than Wilt Chamberman. And still, while he changed his, he changed his, his methodical approach to shooting actually got better and still could not handle a bunch of people in the stands dressed in a grandmother dress with the white, you know, white hair wig and kind of pearl necklaces, and they would wear them and, and they would boo him and scream at him from the stands. He couldn't handle the negative valuation and rejected. So he went back to his old way and scored fewer points. All right. So, so that's kind of a funny and odd example. But you also write in the book that, quote, people will go to bizarre lengths to rationalize and protect a social system that harms them. Also seems like, why? It's just like Wilt Chamberlain, right? Here you have someone that has objective scientific evidence, money in his pocket, knowing that if he breaks from the status quo, he will do better in life and he couldn't handle the rejection. There's a study just, just released today that was published. I think it was 37 countries. And the question was, if you believe in a just world, that mm-hmm. good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, what is that? what does that belief do in terms of your your tendency to accept accept economic inequality what you find is that those people that believe that the world is fair it's it's not a bad belief it's not malevolent it's not narcissism or psychopathy it's just a belief that you know everything kind of evens out those people are more likely to accept that all right the people in the top 10% of the wealth bracket they earn their place there mm. and the dark side that the darker side is the top low, the bottom percent, 10% that they, they earned where they are. So just these cognitive beliefs that we have, that the status quo, that the, that the popular sentiments of society have, they've all evened out and, they, and, they, and, and everything is in its right place. That is the default belief for most humans, even though we like to believe, you know, you and I and everyone else listening mm-hmm. that, well, not us. We actually see all the holes in society and we see the sexism and we see the racism and we see the opportunity hoarding in general, probably not. And none of us actually are really good at this unless when we're reminded to because of our own self-interest and our own self-interest is a nice stable, coherent sense of meaning in the world. Everything kind of makes sense. And because of that, I use less energy and less effort to walk through the world in terms of predicting what's Kelly's next question going to be. What are my kids going to be? What mood are my kids going to be when I walk out of this office right now? Mm -hmm. Um, How am I going to do in pickleball in the aftermath of spending two hours on podcasts? We want to be really good at predicting what the world is going to be like, because then we have to use less energy as we navigate the shoals and stresses and complexities of the world and believing that the world is just uh, is is sufficient answer enough for us to keep problematic elements of society right where they are and do nothing about it? You know, this is this is why I'm such an advocate for improvisation as a practice to combat 
that sort of thinking. And I remember the first time we led a yes and improv exercise for Richard Thaler, he was basically like, oh, you're doing a, a nudge. I mean, the, the, the default of people is to do nothing or say no. And so this whole concept of yes and is a nudge to maybe not do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's it's the beauty of having this conversation right now. You don't send me the questions in advance. We have no. I have no idea where the conversation is going to go. You have no idea how I'm going to respond. And that improvisational nature, we go into flow states, right? We're, we're totally engaged. It's it's it feels it feels effortless, even though we're using a ton of cognitive activity. And these are the moments that are the things that are the most memorable elements of your entire existence. They're the building blocks of a fulfilling life. And yet we forget that. And we spend so much time over rehearsing, over practicing, anticipating what's going to happen that we don't allow that improvisational lifestyle to take place. And, and just as a behavioral experiment, you know, you just ask people to try to not prepare anything going into a party, anything going into a dinner conversation, and just see what emerges and just be curious and explore. And don't be the the, don't be the conductor. Don't orchestrate the conversations and compare it to your other, your other social gatherings. What you'll most likely find is that, that interest, that intrigue, that ambiguity, that complexity, that mystery, that's, that's what makes life rich. Yeah. The, the, the little improv phrase we have is bring a brick, not a cathedral. You know, you're doing this with other people and, and it's very exciting and, and you don't know how, it, what it's going to look like at the end. Um, the thing that uh, I, I love, love, loved uh, was you talk about psychological safety, which everyone talks about, and there's, it's great. Amy's work's great. She's been on the pod. Um, but uh, the Project Aristotle program at Google, which people normally talk about, you found a scientist who said that wasn't the whole story. That this, so it, just for our listeners, this idea after doing the study was that they discovered that psychological safety was the most important factor for team success, I believe, was the study, right? right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But there's another part to it. Yeah, it's it's a very important piece because we like to oversimplify complex human behavior. So what makes a group incredible? What makes a group greater than the sum of its parts? And fits very well with Second City and talking about improv. Yeah. And one of those elements is psychological safety. But if you but it only works and it's controversial. Psychological yeah. safety a sense of trust, a sense that you can say things without being harmed by making these verbal transgressions, a sense that you can make mistakes, a sense that you'll be forgiven, all of those elements, a sense that there's, there's, there's a, you'll be viewed as credible until proven otherwise. It doesn't work to make us a team more intelligent or more creative and better at making decisions unless you have a reservoir of diverse knowledge, information, ideas, and perspectives. And this makes perfect sense when you get down to it. And you, this is not what psychological safety is. What it means is, is if you don't have diverse views in the room in the first place, if you have diverse people in the room, but you haven't extracted their diverse ideas and perspectives, if you don't allow dissent, then psychological safety has no benefit when it comes to creativity, performance, and decision-making. And this is a very important element is that to what degree have you, with your group, allowed minority of one voices to express their view and get a fair hearing for those yeah. views? And I think most groups think that they do. And the reason is the reason that they could say yes is because they often don't hear the silence 
of those people that don't actually express their views in the first place. So the only way that you can actually find this out is not from observing a group communicating with each other, but actually collecting information independently and anonymously of to what degree are people not saying what they would like to be saying in the full group setting. What's happening at the, you know, at the happy hour, at the fire pits, at the barbecues, as opposed to the actual group setting? Because those are the toxins, the small level of CO2 in the air that slowly toxifies an entire organization. Uh, one of the things I've talked about before on the pod is a, a theatrical technique uh, to get people to bring in... Uh, that 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 idea that they otherwise wouldn't um, for for whatever reason. And Mick Napier, a longtime director at Second City, calls it taboo day. And his idea is basically, all right, today you're going to bring an idea that Second City would never in a million years allow to be on that stage. <laughs> and and so it's like, oh, complete freedom. And inevitably, like three, four, five pieces will end up in the show just because people were like, oh, why were you holding yourself back? Wait, so I'm I'm so curious because I view. I've been to Second City several times in Chicago. I have a hard time imagining that that people view something taboo, especially before, prior to <laughs> prior to now, <laughs> prior to 2010. Let's say, yeah, right. Uh, no, I mean th- that's the amazing thing is that we all hold back to a certain degree, um, and it might be, it might not just be that it was dirty or that it was edgy or it could be that it was too expensive but you know maybe it isn't like like bring bring it in let's see what happens in the room and this is the great when you're doing it well when you have a really good ensemble of improvisers uh they are constantly throwing out an impossible thing because they know the person across them can find find something in that and that sort of really robust creativity is what what makes a great second city show also because it's um done in front of an audience, so it's rapid prototyped as, as the content develops. But it's that initial, uh, I think most of our alumni would say to you, and Colbert was just here the other day, he did a Q&A with our talent, and he even said this, it's like the absolute best material they ever had was stuff that was so off the wall that no one thought it would work. So here's the, so here's the question, is yeah. where society is right now, where the boundaries have become less permeable in terms of what's offensive, what's not offensive, what is that doing to improv and comedy in your view? I mean, uh, we're a 300-seat theater in Chicago that has a giant national and international reputation for doing this work. So, like, one of our credos has always been dare to offend. I, I don't use it as much right now because I think it would be misunderstood in the, in the contemporary context. But we're not finding ourselves censored in our work on stage, but also we are satirists. So we are doing, you know, the, the, the context and framing it's in, in a, in a theatrical world is, is amazing and great. If I were to take that to Twitter, that would be probably a right. problem, but we're not doing our shows on Twitter. So, and then I think you can find, I know this, there is plenty of edgy comedy out there to be consumed and found. Yes. And the people who are, I find, in my opinion, who are complaining the most about being silenced, either have giant platforms um, or don't understand the need to update their comedy. Right. Wait, so, wait, okay, so this, now that I have you here, no, I have, I have another question for you. So this is, so I'm going to tell you, um, here, is, here is a term that has always bothered me, and um, I am encouraging you to dissent from my view. Yeah. I've always despised the term 
no punching down in comedy and satire because it automatically assumes that there is this very clear hierarchy where whoever you said you're now punching down sort is lesser than right someone in a wheelchair someone from a marginalized group um someone from a a less popular religion not one of the big three religions that happens there and i'm wondering what your thoughts are about punching up versus punching down so i use i use that expression and my understanding of what it means is that it's whatever the power dynamic is in front of you right now so what what you know, we also have competitive victimhood going on out there. So, so the idea of um, there are people who might have, in a previous context, uh, be considered to be uh, down, uh, but because of their social media following, because of where they are in the conversation, they're actually up. Um, and so, so understanding that that status changes and, 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 and changes like by the hour. Uh, means I think that the phrase still is valid. What you don't want to be doing, if you're satirist, what you don't want to be doing is looking to take on uh, the people who are harmed by whatever by by the by the person who's in power at that moment or has control over them and that sort of thing. So I think generally the idea is good because here you know I have a phrase which I always say, which is um, um, if it can't be used for evil, it's not a superpower. And so I think both improv and comedy are superpowers. And you will notice that Trump, who's very funny, uses comedy to otherize right. human beings. That's right. And right. what we do is the opposite here. We, we are bringing you in. We are sharing, uh, hopefully sharing a value and an ethic through our laughter. And, and certainly some people don't agree with us and they write letters and we often frame those and put them on our wall because that's what we do. Kelly, I love, I love the way that you're framing this because I had... I hadn't even thought about Trump being funny more than that um, he has that that biting acerbic wit that pops out every once in a while, although it's probably pre-written in advance. Um, it's, Some of oh, it. It's, it's interesting what you said because I'm, I'm thinking of – I remember I went to the, the comedy store in New York City, and mm-hmm. there was a woman in a wheelchair in the front row, and she was begging for comedians to make fun of her and almost like daring them. And so as you're saying – the fluidity of the power structure is she's she's professing loudly of saying, don't treat me as lesser than because I'm right. not right now. The habits here. So alter the context slightly and have the woman in the wheelchair who sits in the front row doesn't say a peep. Now, do you assume that there is a uh, that she is lower on the this this you know this arbitrary power hierarchy until she speaks and says that she she welcomes and embraces the comedy because she is sitting in the front row which we all know is the front row is a dangerous place to be in if you have a thin skin yeah um my brother-in-law was in a wheelchair and came to tons of second city shows and he's like please put in scenes with people in wheelchair because i want to be seen you know, and, and, and yeah. I don't mind, you know, and, and th- that, that was at a point where we, you know, it's getting trickier with casting and, and people, you know, so I'll, I'll admit that that, you know, people are not playing other races where they, they might have done that in the past. Um, I don't know. I think that, I think we at Second City see it this way, which is if you're coming to our house, we're going to be respectful to everyone, but we're doing our, our comedy and we always want it to um, we're, we're not looking to hurt uh, people, everyday people. We are taking on institutions, systems, some people, I mean, we'll take on Trump. We'll take on other people like that. Right. Um, and, and my, my wife is a comedy professor and she talks about, 
the, the sort of three elements of comedy, which are pain uh, and distance and recognition. Um, and and it's, like, it's like a mixing board. You're always playing with that. So I if, like that. Uh, it's, if it's, you know, six months after, uh, if, if it's a year after Columbine, uh, we can do a scene in Chicago about Columbine. We couldn't do it in Columbine. And it wasn't okay for the Northwestern freshman who had been a senior at Columbine. And I specifically went through that situation. So she was, she, the scene came up, she ran out of the theater crying. And I'm like, and I happened to be at the theater. I'm like, what, ha- what happened? And she's like, I was at Columbine. I was there. You can't be doing this material. And I'm like, I, I get, I get it. I am so sorry. We will totally refund you, but we're not going to take the scene out of the show because the, 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 the everyone else is, is okay with that. And, and it was the same after nine 11, it depended where we were. When Gilbert Gottfried made the first joke in the aftermath of 9-11 and kind of opened the floodgates. And it was just this big like sigh of relief when kind of when he did that. But it no, wasn't I, like I, everyone yeah. just started making fun of this stuff. It's it's to the very first thing that we talked about in this podcast, right? With 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 Darwin and the people who came before. It's like Lenny Bruce was getting arrested so that, you know, later people wouldn't ha- have that issue. That that happens in our field, you know, all, all the time. Um, but again, you're Everything in both stand-up comedy and improv is beta tested with audiences. And yeah. the reason that comics do five minutes or 10 minutes or gig, you know, different places is to really like figure it out um, and know how far you can go. Carlin has that great line of like, I want to cross over the line, take your hand and have you come with, with me and make it. You're glad that you came. I remember that. Right. You know, it's it's funny because Lenny Bruce is in the director's cut. He was originally in the book, and then I oh. I, I cut it out. Um, but I mean, the beauty of that, of Lenny Bruce is, I think history is often a really good anecdote to understanding why you need rebellions today. Because if yeah. you look at Lenny Bruce when he was, you know, in, in New York City, I mean, just the idea of what was he talking about? He was talking about interracial relationships. He was talking mm-hmm. about divorce, and he was mm-hmm. talking about um, when you when you dislike your own kids. All yeah. things that is very common, you know, parlance conversations today. But when he said that in the, you know, the no 50s, one was doing it. It was it was, it was literally uh, mother-in-law jokes right before that. Right. So it was I mean, it's but you, so if, so do you, you look at that footage, you listen to his albums, you, you know, you read you read his books and you say, I can't even understand. I can't grasp a social norm that's right. so far foreign from today, which raises the question then. What are the social norms today that we're going to be focusing on 30 years to say, how freaking absurd were they? Right. Like yeah. I always think of in a hundred years from now, one of the social norms that we'll view as incredibly um, ridiculous and problematic is everyone eating meat. I think there's yeah. going to be a period in a hundred years where they're going to be pulling down statues of meat eaters. Anyone that was a great scientist, a great politician or great no. soldier is like, but did they eat meat? And then you're going to pull down the statues. That's me. <laughs> like, I know. I think about it. I listen to Ezra Klein. I know. Uh, I, like, I don't disagree with it, but I'm, you know, I don't know. Uh, uh, I have to bring up this. Like, a, a book like this did not necessarily think Fugazi was going to like pop up. Uh, so I kind of love that. Uh, how did they end up in this book? Yeah, I mean, I grew up as a, a punk rock fanatic. You know, you know, like many people, I didn't have primary ch- primary caregivers growing up as a kid, so movies and music musicians mm-hmm. they raised me and uh, and fugazi was the band that you know hit me when when i was 13 years of age and this is a band that 
I mean, even today, they have over a million Spotify listeners. Almost none of the people listening to this have any idea who Fugazi is. Um, they're, they're a fusion of so many genres that they can't, they can't claim a genre. So they can't be you know, alternative rock, Radiohead and Pearl Jam, heavy metal, Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath. There's no genre to say what Fugazi is. And despite having a million followers even today, they never charge more than $5 to go to a show. They never charge more than $10 for a cassette, then for a CD, then for whatever came after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they always, they only went to venues that allowed all ages because they remember being kids and being turned away from concerts because they weren't, they weren't 17 years old. And so they vowed to themselves, we'll always let everyone in. We won't serve beer and alcohol. And we won't do interviews at magazines that serve, that do advertising with beer and alcohol because we don't want any of the kids to follow our bands. Uh, to think that we that we're supportive of those messages and that kind of ethics. There's actually a, another piece that I actually left out in the book, which was they had a contract offer from Atlantic Records mm-hmm. for a multi million dollar contract. They turned it down because they wanted full rights and privileges for how they made their records, what was on their records, and what they did at concerts. And you don't meet too many bands with that level of integrity. No, yeah, and and I mean, I was thinking like. Neil Young is also someone for me who constantly, even though there was those like that terrible like uh, uh, rockabilly period, you know, and and the terrible like techno period. But he was also someone who constantly seemed to not give in and was experimenting and opened up for other people in terms of to then follow and 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 and, and have breakthrough music. Yeah, that that generativity piece is important as well. Right. Because the one thing that Fugazi did is they took all of their success and they're not multimillionaires. This is not a, this is not a wealthy bet. I mean, I met Ian McKay on a stoop as I was talking to him about this book and got to mm. interview him. Oh, cool. And he always put well, they they always put their money back into their record label. So they own their own record label called Discord in Washington, D.C., and they always funded up and coming bands. And then to go further obviously I'm a huge fanboy. is they supported some of the first all-female lead singers and all-female oh. bands in the punk rock scene. And a lot of that riot girl scene, which is a famous um, element in the, in the, you know, the annals of feminism is spawned by Fugazi of we're going to fund you because we don't care what your sex is. We care whether your music is good. That's great. Um, one of the things we've talked a lot about, here when we're examining like what what is at the heart the, when we think about the purpose of second city and the and the great greater thing that's going on here and the thing i sort of landed on is is connection that we've th- both through our art form connect our our people together we connect audiences this idea of shared laughter is a miracle everyone laughing at the same time what what a beautiful incredible thing that is and you write in the book a couple different ways. One of them is, quote, lone rebels don't get very far in their own. Um, you have like sharing pain serving as a strategy for bringing people together. So what, talk to us about how that piece fits into the rebel equation. Yeah, I mean, you know, my favorite example of principled rebellion, which is not in the book, is the gay liberation movement in the 1970s. And this entire movement was of course, the reason they got together and all of their allies joined the cause was because being gay really should have no, no, it's a, it's a proxy variable that has nothing to do with anything about a human being in society other than what they do on their free time. And, but what's beautiful about the gay liberation movement in the 70s was 
this is this is where people found their home. So when they they would you know they had their third space. You have home, you have work, and do you have a third space? Do you have a softball league? You know, do you have the Elk Lodge for a bunch of you know old white mm-hmm. men to hang out and talk about you know all the rich travels they can go on? And for for gay men and women, it was these bars you know in New York City, it was these bars in San Francisco, and these bars in major cities that they would go to. And you felt bad for people that were gay. They were you know in Iowa and Idaho and Arkansas because they didn't have those bars. Mm-hmm. And 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 it was all about connection. It was in some ways, the reason that there was gay liberation was not so much of how they persuaded other people because they became such a coalition of so many people who had such strong identification with who they were as a human being, their values and their inherent nature of their humanity. And they had such good times together and they shared the difficulties of, you know, with, with police officers who are homophobic and government officials who would come out and publicly comfortable talking about how, you know, being gay is a is disease, is a mental disorder. And they there was connection over that. And mm-hmm. but the other part of this about the gay liberation movement because I think it's just the analog for the answer to this question is a lot of their protests were really freaking funny. Yeah. You'd carry around signs that said, why won't you let us get divorced? Just like you do. Yeah. And this, and then, and then you would, you could see old footage from the seventies of people smiling and laughing. And you know, that they weren't pro gay coming into this on the outside of this protest. And yet, as you're saying, there's this connection that happens with that laughter. And I almost want to give this really big plea to modern socially conscious activists of don't forget humor and levity in the toolbox. Not that these aren't serious, somber mm-hmm. issues, but as you said, let's not ignore that part of getting detractors to realize that they are wrong in their ways is to have that human connection. Now, part of it is being face-to-face that you can actually, someone has to say something derogatory to you, not in front of a crowd. You look, have to look you in the eyes. But the other one is if you're funny, as you're saying it with Second City, if you, if you say something humorous, you can't really stifle a smile and a laugh. It's going right. to emerge in some way. And so you have to expand the arsenal because your goal is to convert people and change people's minds and and move the primary outcome, which is, you know, increase equality, reduce societal problems and get rid of rules and orders and authority figures that are making the world, you know, less healthy. And with these aims, part of, you know, the way to get Putin is to be is the satirist. He hates. Oh, yeah. He, he hates the idea that he is not an athletic and virile and manly oh. and strong. And so if you can poke fun at any of his like weaknesses, this is much more powerful than almost any economic sanction because the guy's got a, you know, he's got a warehouse of funds and resources that can go for decades. It's interesting. There's three schools of improvisation. So ours is stems from Viola Spolin, who was a social wor- worker bringing immigrant children uh, into her care. And she created these exercises and games to get them to collaborate and empathize. Uh, there's Keith Johnstone, who's still living, uh, British-born Canadian, uh, who is very much about using improv to make plays. And then there was Augusta Boal, uh, who's from Brazil, and he had Theater of the Oppressed. And he was using improvisation and play for social change. Um, and so that that element is kind of baked in there. And there's famous stories here from the convention that Abby Hoffman would come do the improv set. Um, and then and then go back to Grant Park for whatever, you know, uh, uh, rioting was going on, uh, protests. Uh, so that that idea and I don't know if there's any literature on this, but the idea of embedded play 
inside of protest movements feels like, yeah, that that if you start looking at the effectiveness and certainly it's our comics who I mean, we're not turning to Walter Cronkite anymore. We're turning to Colbert. We're turning to Trevor Noah. We're turning to John Oliver. Right. Right. So um, I'm curious when you when you think of Augusta's body of work, is there like a like a, a, a skit or like an image that comes to mind of the, the theater for the oppressed? So so they were very much about um, egalitarian. So removing that wall between uh, performer and audience that we're all doing this together in in some regard. Uh, And I'll admit, I know his work least of the the three, uh, though I've I've read a fair uh, fair amount about it. Um, But yeah, it it was very much of um, how do we level the playing field? Um, How do we mirror each, each other? It also goes back to just simply like, why was theater invented? you know, as a way for us to see what was really going on with society. And, and his, his main difference is that he, he wanted um, the audience to be improvising as well as the actors. So like many of these events, you would come up and you'd be in the show. So let me, let me play with this about, about humor. That's always intrigued me. Um, I want to make a parallel with Albert Ellis, who is one of the two founders of cognitive behavioral therapy. So him and, and uh, Aaron Beck. So in New York city, Albert Ellis came up with paradoxical therapy, which was whatever it is thing that you're ashamed of or embarrassed of, we're going to have you do it and realize it's not nearly as bad as how you anticipate it's going to be. So if, you know, the idea, if you were worried that you might uh, soil yourself while you're walking through central park, he would actually have you, you know, take some, some wet chocolate and kind of put it all over your shorts and then walk through central park. And you would, Matt, you would guess, what do you think is going to happen before you do this? And when you see it, no matter what happens, what normally happens, someone comes up to you and says, Hey, are you okay? Like, did you have a stroke or something? Is, did you, I think you, you know, your pants, they're brown. It's, uh, can I help? Um, so in some ways, I've seen over the Sarah Silverman and, and Amy Schumer, one of the ways that they are the theater of the oppressed is they take this paradoxical, paradoxical humor where they go so extreme for the issue that you are, you might be on the wrong side of that you can't help but realize the absurdity of your position. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the exact jokes, but I know that they both played with abortion and they yep. actually went so far and extreme that it was to repulse you and discuss you because it was so not had almost no bearing on what actually happens, but just to kind of get you in the emotional state of realizing I'm glad it's not that wait. So hold on. Wait, wait what is my position? What's the thing that I'm most worried about? It's That's definitely right. not what, what they said. And there's something really subversive and beautiful about taking it. And this gets to when, you know, again, going back to the gay liberation movement in the 70s, before it became a, a touchstone point to criticize people that were gay of saying it'll open the doors to bestiality, it'll open mm-hmm. the doors to pedophilia, humorous in the 70s did this first. So first it was just kind of a joke is, listen, just know that if if you let us in, it's it's only right behind us is going to be, you know, cats and dogs to be making love on your, you know, on your bathroom floor. And they were playing with these ideas. And then once there was some traction, people used their own actual effective subversive strategies attempted in a, in a probably ineffective way to use it as an insult, which I never thought actually worked and had any um, had had much traction. But it's interesting to kind of this paradoxical uh, notion of take something to its nth power and extreme to point out the you know the frailty of someone's positions. 
Yeah, there's a few different things going on there. For the comic themselves, especially in stand-up comedy, um, this is my wife's theory. She says in improv, we're perspective-taking from the audience. We get their suggestions and we create their material and print it back to them. In stand-up, what a stand-up has to do is do perspective-giving. So they spend the first five minutes of their act, maybe longer, and normally what they're doing is talking about the flaw in themselves. The very obvious. So if it's Patton Oswalt, I'm chubby. And if it's uh, Amy Schumer, I'm a slut. Um, you know, and, and uh, Silverman played with that a little bit too, right? So you just start thinking about all these comics. You're like, oh yeah, Mulaney's a drunk. You know, that's a, like, this is how it all starts in part because human beings, and I think this is in some, some of, uh, maybe not in this book, but in certain in your field, understanding of like, we're kind of attracted to your, 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 your um, uh, we want your fiascos. We don't want like everything working out great. We're actually attracted right. To, right. To, to that. And, and I think leaders, very good leaders know that. And so they talk about their, whatever their struggle was um, or, or very effective talkers. I, I was just talking about Marcus Buckingham, who's really a, a terrific speaker. And he, had, he couldn't speak for the first 12 years of his life. So he has this whole story about his stammer was so bad, and it leads to a, a discovery of, of him doing public speaking and being fine. Um, and then it went away. So whatever it is. So there's, there's something inside, inside that stuff. And then the other game that you're talking about is how far can I take this? Exploring and heightening. How far, and I should try to take it as far as I can until it, it, you, know, you can't take it any further. And then, and then find a way back. And I think the great comics also do that. They, like, like the Carlin thing. They also bring it back. Right. So that you're, not just, you're not just stuck on the ugly image. Yeah, I, I love how you dissect leaders this way, right? Because you think of Betty Ford revealing her substance abuse problem. Um, Biden? And, and, yeah, and then and actually, and it's interesting. I mean, I'm even thinking of um, Michelle Obama, of her sheer muscularity. She would discuss it sometimes as a strength and sometimes as a flaw in terms of people were too intimidated to come up to her and talk to her and people didn't see her as feminine. And yeah. so she would play with this in both ways. And depending, as you were saying, giving the perspective to whatever she thought the audience audience centric, whatever she thought the audience would be, would gain value from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't, yeah, I haven't used this to think about um, the, the perceived flaws from the perspective of, of others as a useful tool to actually be an effective, compassionate leader. Yeah. Yeah. I think it increases connection. All right. I, in a second, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, but before we do that, I want you to talk about this study. I think it was, uh, Dr. Inga Hover, is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, yeah. I don't know, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but, but. okay. Uh, so she had seventy-seven three-person teams organize a creative community theater production, and I love what happened in terms of what one group was given and what the results were, and and with the other. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So so you're 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 designing a theater production, and in in one in one condition everybody's assigned individual roles so you've got someone that's the manager of the theater someone in charge of ticket sales someone that's sort of the actual the creativity director and then so you have you have cognitive diversity you have the yeah. vol- the roles cleared out of each person has their usefulness in the group and in the other group you allow for that sort of to some degree homogeneity in terms of you're all just going to work together to put this put this production forth and what she found was it didn't matter if the group had cognitive diversity or not. That had no effect on performance. It only cognitive diversity only was beneficial 
if people received a one-page handout instruction about make sure that you take the perspective of the other individuals in your group who have very distinct roles from yourself. The lessons from this study are so important about organizations and groups and diversity because we really do we really do often think of this at a very superficial level is that if we get demographic diversity, if we get cognitive diversity, if we have people with different backgrounds, we're good. The, the team's going to make better decisions, be more creative, higher performance. There's actually very little data, despite what people say, that there is actually an effect there. What matters is, is, the, is there a process there to get the unique information that a diverse individual has in that group? And as you're saying, there's two parts of this. One is getting the perspective. Um, you actually have to extract that information. And the other one is to take the perspective. So you can get the perspective and be like, all right, listen, you're part of the group. You belong. You fit in. Good on you. Let's go back to having the three middle-aged white men eat up 80% of the airtime. You have to take the perspective, which is, are you going to actually do the yes and, and actually, now that I've heard your views, now that I've gotten your background, am I going to use it to inform and improve the group's thinking, the group's emotions, and actually how we actually structure the entire environment that we work in? And most organizations just do lip service and they don't do the perspective gate getting the perspective taking. They're perfectly content with the beautiful website photo where you've got a bunch of hands that are different colors and they're all slapping five together. <laughs> yeah, they are. I love it's such It's such a tiny intervention. We actually just had a study published that we did with uh, Ayelet Fishbach and it was uh, with different people, uh, 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 level A improv students, and half of the group were told, hey, this exercise we're going to do is going to be uncomfortable. And the other group weren't told anything. And the group that were just told it was going to be uncomfortable had such a better experience and stuck at it longer. And it's like, this is the tiniest thing. It's just saying a couple words to someone. Yeah. You know, I just, I just wrote an article a couple of days ago about rethinking trigger warnings, which fits with um, ILET's research and, and you mm-hmm. is, um, is I, I view them as mile markers and it's, it's uh, which is all that don't, don't think of it in these politically contentious terms. All it is is saying we are now starting chapter four of our journey in this conversation. And what's going to be, I'm going to give you a sneak preview of what's going to be in this chapter. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult for a few of you. That's all that it's doing. It's not a big deal. It's, it's you're, all you're doing is doing front loading before you have a conversation of what the topic's going to be. Right. Right. Um, and it's, it's, it's no different than you saying, hey, by the way, gang, you know, hey, can I tell you about this new movie I saw? That, the trigger warning is no different than that. All you're doing is setting up a framework for what the, the next words that are going to be emitted. And it's amazing how we are so concerned about the emotional welfare of individuals that, of, that they're going to be fragile. And yet you have people that are so fragile that think a, a few words to set up a, set up a conversation is such a is such a problematic element as if people are so fragile right it's right. a weird I, it's a weird kafka-esque paradox yeah i i love how you phrase that all right we always end the podcast with a yes and story do you have one for us sure so okay. this is this is about in in the work world um I was asked to join 30 social anxiety experts um, to meet in Jerusalem for a a convention. And my initial thought was that sounds like the most socially excruciating conversation ever thinking about the me search that you mentioned before. Right, right, right. Um, So I was like, I was like, listen, if I'm going to go to Israel for the first time, do I want to be with shy, timid, 
socially uncomfortable individuals, which is no offense to those people listening who are social anxiety researchers, most of them. Um, and not only did it say yes, partly just to go to Jerusalem, um, and not only did I make sure to spend a lot of time one-on-one with individuals because we know the people that are socially anxious actually are behave no differently in one-on-one um, mm-hmm. than people that are incredibly extroverted and incredibly comfortable in social situations. But we actually decided is that when is the, when do we ever get 30 social anxiety researchers together and we're actually creating um, a, a, a two papers on the state of the field, what do we know, what do we think we know, what do we need to know about social anxiety? And so we have the you know 30 socially anxious people um, who got together and we're kind of continuing Five years later, we're still collaborating together. Wow. That's amazing. Do you know that we have an improv for social anxiety program here? No, I don't. So what happened was a, a group of people started taking classes and we're like, this does not seem like the standard student. And we sort of dug in and we found that a um, psychologist, psychiatrist, I forget what, what, he, what he was, he uh, basically was prescribing improv classes uh, to some of his patients. Um, and they were, and they, they enjoyed it. Um, and, and so then we ended up like teaming up with them. We're like, let's make it a program. And so we created this improv for social anxiety. So they have, we're kind of group. And then they have their one-on-one with their, um, uh, whoever they're seeing, their therapist or psychologist. And it's gone on for, I don't know, it's like a decade now. And the kids really love it. And then, and then of course, when you dig deeper, you realize there's all sorts of people who are on the spectrum who found their way to improvisation because, when you're improvising, you can't be lingering in the past. You can't be catastrophizing about the future. You have to be fiercely in the moment with your partner whose only right. job is to save you. Right, right. What a great place to be. And that's not where these people, you know, it's like that. all the practices are, are about that. Yeah. Wait, Kelly, have you, is, is there data on how effective this is for improving people's lives? Not data that my buddies at the University of Chicago would find useful. But yeah, there's, there's, there's a few studies of, of cohorts. Uh, that that we've done because we've also done this with people with Parkinson's and and some other things and so there's there's some small scale studies it would be nice if they were larger yeah um, wait, what's the you said it was yo- it was younger adults what's the age of the people that are that are no in it's study? actually anyone it's it's it I mean it started uh, on the on the youth end but now it, it in, involves anyone and we actually do stuff for you know um, seniors as well now that that all live in sort of this wellness category uh, of of work that we do. So it's really and we, do, we create an improv for caregivers program with the Cleveland Clinic and a group called Caring Cross Generations. So it, it's just again the, when you think about improvisation as being human being practice, yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. Then it's like okay, looking people in an eye, okay, listening to the end of their sentence, recognizing you don't have to respond right away, that you could take a beat. Um, all those sort of other kinds of understanding status, you know, and what does it mean for me to give space, you know, in a room on a stage with, 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 uh, my, my scene partner. I cannot be, I didn't think I'd become a bigger fan of second city after this, but I mean, it is actually possible to continue getting, growing even greater fondness. You know, I, I wonder if, um, people that go through these cohorts together, yeah. Whether whether the social bonds are amplified so quickly that they create these lo- these long lasting social relationships after oh, being in it. Totally. Everyone, if you, if you go through a five level, six level program here, it's like the, you have friends for life. That that is that That's is the situation. Yeah. I mean, Tina Fey is I just saw pictures of like uh, a, a guy who teaches here who didn't become famous, was just in New York in with Tina Fey. <laughs> 
hanging out and they know each other because they took classes together. Right. Although, you know, there's two things, right? One thing is, is you're going through this hardship and this, this accelerated growth journey together. The second one is the age that you are when you go through it. So there's probably, something, there's, probably I mean, there's something about that. Like, I think, um, I think the musicologists talk about how the music that you'll be obsessed with the remainder of your life tends to be when you're 18 or 19 years of age. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So there's something about that potentially as well with as this comedic growth happens, if it happens around that age is, is like quintessential for lifelong friendships. I think you're right. I think you're right. All right. This, this conversation will go on offline. Uh, the new book is called The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Todd Cashton, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, you were so fun to talk to, Kelly. Damn. (laughs) The Getting the Yes Hand podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
sauvage. 